welcome to another episode of the Religious Studies Project. I'm Christopher Cotter and I'm joined by David Robertson. What's the podcast this week, Chris? The podcast this week is um, actually not what was about to come out of my mouth because we'd just been rehearsing the end of the podcast. <laughs> this week's podcast is with Kate McCarthy and she's talking about religion, popular culture and Bruce Springsteen. Huh? Take it away, A. David Lewis and Kate McCarthy. Hi, Kate. This is David Lewis calling. Hey, how are you? Good, good. Is this still a good time to talk? It is. Let's talk about just how God in the details came about. Uh, did you already have a pre-existing professional relationship with uh, Eric Mazur, your co-editor? Was this your brainchild, a mutual brainchild, the result of a conference? So what's its origin point? Yeah, um, Eric Mazur and I were colleagues here at Chico State for one year. He was on a visiting professorship um, back in, gosh, 1996 or seven, And um, he lived near me, and we ended up walking to work together. And so we'd just chat on the way to work and discovered uh, a common interest in popular culture. And he's a scholar primarily of uh, American religious history and church-state relations, and I'm trained as a theologian. So our, our um, backgrounds were very different, but we were both interested in how these themes of American religion showed up in popular culture. And he was very interested in uh, television and film, uh, and I was very interested in music. And so just from a series of friendly conversations, we said, you know, there might be a book project here. And we contacted people we knew who were working in these areas and pretty quickly had a nice list of um, potential topics and and scholars to uh, to explore this whole range of um, of interests. And what was the landscape like at that time? I know that you came out with a second edition uh, in 2011, but the first edition came out in 2000, and obviously there was some time spent uh, working up to that, collecting essays, speaking with people, editing it together. Uh, so this must have been uh, pre-Y2K. Uh, how were you yes. received by colleagues? Um, well, it, the mid-90s, I think, was a time of, of um, a lot of interest in religion and popular culture, uh, but there's always a risk in popular culture studies. First of all, it's so fluid, you know, things change so fast mm -hmm. that the minute you've said something, it's obsolete, um, and there's always a risk that the uh, the material can't bear the weight of analysis. You know, sometimes um, you know, sometimes a rock and roll song is just a rock and roll song, uh, and, and so sometimes I, a cigar is just a cigar. Exactly. Right. right. So I think uh, you know we always wanted to to have a pretty light touch, um, and you know just just kind of putting some ideas out there that there might be something more to popular culture. Uh, then immediately meets the eye, and so let's poke around a little bit. Um, but we always knew that we had to be very wary of saying anything very definitive. And I think because of that, um, you know, for both of us, it was kind of a, a side interest to our primary academic research. Um, I don't think either one of us counts ourselves as um, pop culture scholars as our, as our primary uh, area. Uh, so that was a little bit self-protective, you know, but I think in the, in the intervening years, um, popular culture has just emerged more and more as a mm -hmm. really important site for mm -hmm. understanding American religion in particular, you know, because of the 
uh, ongoing deinstitutionalization uh, of uh, of American spirituality. We've got to look somewhere else than organized religion to find out what's going on in um, the spirituality of, of contemporary Americans. Uh, yeah, and I, I actually wanted to follow that. I wanted to ask if there was any topic that you held off on or any stance that you held off on in the first edition that you were excited or eager to have revisited or uh, included in the second edition. Does any come to mind? Well, I think, you know, the Internet obviously mm. was important in 2000, but 10 years later, uh, you know, astronomically more important to American daily life. And so we knew we had to go back to um, the Internet as, a, as, as both a place where religious things were happening and as a, a, um, you know, as a, as a phenomenon on which, in which there might be religious significance. So we added that chapter from uh, my colleague Daniel Weidlinger on social networking and its implications for religious life. Um, you know, are there actually things happening to the way we uh, experience ourselves in the world as a right. result of our online activity that could be understood religiously? And I don't you also, think we were asking that 10 years ago. Right, and you also had a chapter, if I'm not mistaken, from uh, Rachel Wagner on Second Life. I doubt, on Second Life, exactly. I doubt that was part of the first edition either. Second no. Life wasn't even a glimmer in the virtual eye at the time. Exactly, yeah. All right, well, uh, so you, you said that you weren't, um, when you first went into this, you weren't going in as primarily a religion and pop culture scholar, at least back in, in 2000. But it does seem that you still focused on the, um, you still focused on the structure and the theory of anthropologist Clifford Geertz, uh, that the webs of significance tied right. everything together, making this study uh, possible. Uh, I, I wonder if you would say a little bit more on that, specifically the question that I had. I segued that really well, but never ended in a, never ended in a question. So how do you account for what you call the, uh, in your book, the explosion in scholarly interest in religion and popular culture? And is that shift that you've talked about, does it come from the academy in aspects of lived American religions or even in popular culture itself? I think it's, it, there's an intersection of a lot of different um, threads. So, um, American religion has become more and more a thing that happens outside of religious institutions. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the, the recent study that um, has gotten a lot of media attention on the, the increase in the nuns, N-O-N-E-S, mm -hmm. um, the, the religiously unaffiliated, that, that growth is very, very fast, and it's especially fast among young people, um, people distancing themselves more from organized religion. So, you know, the, the anthropological orientation that Geertz offers makes room for looking at religion in a much broader way, you know, looking out at the world and uh, social experience and uh, aesthetic experience as places where religion-like things might be happening. So have, I think have we know, come the, to the point where we've constructed deconstructed the whole concept of religion so that things that might not have been included under that broad header before are now being perhaps rightfully considered? 
Well, I think they better be, or okay. we're going to really miss the boat. Right. Um, because while that number of religiously unaffiliated people continues to grow, basic human questions and problems are not going away. And so people will continue to reflect on them in ways that we could at least call spiritual, if not religious, although I hate that dichotomy. Um, <laughs> so we're going to have to look somewhere. Uh, and so, you know, when we were working on this book and trying to say, okay, so where are the boundaries and what do we get to call religious and, and what do we exclude? And we determined that we couldn't really offer a definition of what was religious in pop culture, but we could look for markers. Mm -hmm. So where did we see people forming community around shared values? Or where did we see ritualized behaviors emerging? Or where do we hear people using the language of transcendence? Uh, or where do we see people marking off sacred space and time, or what we could call sacred space and time, set apart places and times? Um, and then, of course, where are people using the traditional symbols of uh, of, of uh, the world's religions? You know, where is, where is religious language showing up? Where is religious imagery showing up? And what's being done with it? How is it being manipulated or recast? Uh, so I think there, that, that, that says, when you find those markers, that says there might be something here that, that relates to religion, and so let's... Uh, Let's explore it. And you found some of those markers or were interested in some of those markers or, or connection points in the work of Bruce Springsteen. Now, I'm curious on two levels here. When did you first become professionally interested in Bruce Springsteen? And is that predated by a personal interest, a, a fandom of Springsteen before that? Yes, the personal interest is is, is very old. Um, <laughs> I, I I grew up uh, on the East Coast, and you know, as I said in in that piece, you know, being a fan of Bruce Springsteen was sort of like a local dialect that you had to understand. Mm -hmm. um, and so I I had three sisters, and the four of us were all devoted Springsteen fans, and. Um, really, you know, I, I, I grew up in the, uh, in the seventies and eighties and those, those albums were the background music. And so the landscape he described was a landscape we knew. And I came from a Catholic background. So the, the Catholic imagery, uh, was very familiar and I loved the music. And so it really, um, is, is deeply embedded in my, uh, you know the popular music of my of my uh, life, and so I only became professionally interested in it um, specifically. I mean, I was always sort of tracking the the religious references as I became more and more um, involved in the study of religion. But uh, really, only when we took up this book project, I said, "Oh, finally, a chance I can I can turn back to these Bruce songs." Um, with a different eye and uh, and really tease out some of these themes that have intrigued me over the years. What was your first Bruce Springsteen album? What was the first one that you owned? The first one I owned was Born to Run. Born to Run. And did your sisters have albums before you did? or? No, I think my, in fact, I think my oldest, older sister brought home Born to Run okay. and we all got hooked. Oh, yeah. that's, that's a good one to do it on. Okay, so yeah. you were already hearing uh, as an adolescent, as a young woman, uh, Catholic imagery uh, in Springsteen's works. How have Bruce Springsteen's views on religion, at least as they're reflected in his music, 
uh, evolved? Have they evolved? And has it been uh, in his subject matter that they've evolved, in his lyrics, in his musicality? What's the progress you've tracked there? Mm-hmm. Well, I'm not a musicologist, so I don't Fair know enough. how much I could speak to the to the um, the musical shift. But I think actually the imagery has remained remarkably consistent. Um, there are just some very big, big Christian themes: um, sin and redemption, forgiveness, transcendence, uh, pilgrimage. These are these are all um, throughout his music. I guess mm. in the earlier years, the um, the 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 religious reference the uh, you know, the, the sin and redemption have more to do with um, uh, or transcendence I guess has more to do with breaking out of these um, really oppressive restrictive um, life situations and I think uh, Springsteen would say that the church was a source of a lot of that mm-hmm. oppression in his um, growing up. And so I, th- I think you might get a slightly more sympathetic uh, or appreciative um, uh, sense of uh, the, or use of religious language as he moves through the decades. But I think um, is it fair to say that it was breaking out of institutions in yes. general, one of which was, of course, the Catholic Church or, or the Christian yes, Church. I- I think that's a, 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 a very clear way to put it, exactly. Um, but once that institutional break is made, it's almost like the, the symbols and the language um, can, can sort of come into bloom mm-hmm. effectively. There's a uh, comedian by the name, I believe, Robert Wool, who did a bit a while ago of uh, the New Jersey State Senate thinking of taking Born to Run, considering Born to Run, as the state anthem, which he found quite funny, considering how it's all about getting out of Jersey. Getting out of New Jersey. <laughs> the state anthem yeah. is how to leave this place. Honey, this town <laughs> rips the bones from your back. <laughs> Uh, so I'm reminded of that. Yeah, it's about breaking free of these institutions, religion uh, included. So you see, uh, you heard the Catholic imagery, the idea of hope, salvation, uh, even penance, uh, even mm-hmm. suffering uh, in Springsteen's lyrics. Uh, where do you see, if at all, uh, any non-Judeo-Christian faith in Springsteen's catalog, and uh, if you do see it, does it emerge primarily after 2001? I don't see a lot of it, uh, and I may be missing something, but um, I think mm-hmm. he remains a deeply Christian writer in the sense of his, his uh, imagery and themes. Um, I mean, you hear some uh, Sufi music emerging uh, in um, what's the song, Worlds Apart, mm-hmm. and um, uh, you know, I, I I think there it's much more, um, his interest is in cultural divides and political divides. I don't see him deeply engaging non-Western spirituality. Mm-hmm. I mean, he said somewhere that, you know, once a Catholic, always a Catholic. <laughs> that will be his frame of reference, even if he doesn't um, participate in sacraments or identify as Catholic anymore. I think uh, those um, that framework is is pretty fixed. You talk about the concert experience 
for Bruce Springsteen being yeah. transcendent uh, for fans. Do you have any sense from when you were doing research on this, um, his reception in his reception in areas of the United States identified with uh, different religious uh, majorities? I'm thinking of Salt Lake City, a a Salt Lake City, a major focus of a major area for Mormonism. Uh, yeah. If he's received and the concerts are received differently there than, say, hometown New Jersey or on the West Coast where there might be a different form of spiritualism or religiosity. I do have a very strong sense experientially that uh, his music really is regional. And uh, when I moved to the West Coast in the late 80s, bringing my my Springsteen love with me, uh, <laughs> I didn't find many compatriots out here. Oh. And, uh, and, and I think there was a sense that it, it, I discovered that it really is tied to a kind of um, Northeastern, uh, Catholic-informed, um, and, and a landscape where even if you don't live in one of those industry-abandoned cities, You've seen them, and you've driven through them, and you get it. Uh, and I'm not sure that here in beautiful California... Um, now, of course, you know, some of his later work tapped into different versions of that landscape. You know, the, um, the Tom Joad uh, material is very much um, uh, interested in the experience of Mexican immigrants uh, in Southern California, et cetera. So I, I think Devils and dust, uh, Devils and dust yeah. and Nebraska uh, earlier also yeah. come to mind as exploring different regions, even though it was uh, somewhat critically maligned, even uh, Human Touch and Lucky Town move further west from what was his East Coast bastion. That's right. That's right. But I'm not sure that the, that the fan base has. Ah, uh, fair enough. And, and I, I don't, I mean, you, you could study that. You could figure that out. But I just don't know the answer whether um, the concerts sell as well all over mm-hmm. the country. I assume he, he's, um, he does much better in uh, um, urban areas than um, rural, middle-of-the-country areas. But I think that's, you know, as much about region as about politics. He's so increasingly identified with um, uh, liberal politics and explicitly democratic politics mm-hmm. that the red states are kind of um, alienated, I would imagine. And when you read the um, you know, fan comments uh, on various Springsteen websites, there's a lot of, uh, and I write about this in, in, that, um, in that piece in the book, uh, there's a lot of uh, frustration with his... Um, some of his older fans about this shift to uh, an explicitly democratic right. political orientation. Right. Um, but that's not, that doesn't necessarily represent um, the people that have been buying his records for years. Right. He, uh, I remember particularly both 2004 and 2008, I believe he came out uh, to play and give charities for uh, the candidacy of Barack Obama. And maybe I believe even Al Gore before that, Mm-hmm. Uh, well, I let's, think Obama was the, the first time he explicitly endorsed I a see. candidate. That's fair enough. Uh, well, you're bringing up a, a good point. That this this does segue to my next point. Let's turn this around. Can uh, Springsteen be understood as at all, say, subversive to religion or to certain 
religious communities? Is he mocking or at least co-opting more than evoking religious revival in his songs, lyrics, and concert experiences? I don't see it as subversive because I don't think his primary focus is organized religion. I think his target is um, a, a, a runaway capitalism that has ruined so many lives and communities. And he's using the religious language and the religious event of the revival that you, you experience in a concert setting to, um, to indict that system. Mm. I, don't, I don't see him putting religion in the crosshairs. Uh, it's, um, you know, the, the targets in his songs are, um, are economic fat cats. And um, it's he, he uses the the um, the very old prophetic tradition of calling, uh, you know, of using religious language to call that out as sinful. Um, so so religion doesn't seem to be the problem. Religion is the vehicle for indicting the, the the real problem, which I think is economic from his perspective. Even as he becomes a rather well-off. Uh... A rather exactly. well-off uh, boomer himself. I'm remembering one lyric from back in uh, on his Lucky Town CD: uh, "A life of leisure and a pirate's treasure don't make much for tragedy." He has to find a new way to root his motivation now that he's not uh, now that he's not digging it out at the clubs. Now that he's a stadium seat uh, sellout, a stadium excuse me, yeah, and- a stadium seat blockbuster. Right. And I think this is another reason um, that some of the fan base has been alienated. Uh, I mean, he's a a fairly private guy, so I don't think Mm -hmm. we know a whole lot about his um, rich and famous lifestyle, but there's there's a lot of money there and multiple homes and, um, but and he recognizes that that there's a gap there mm-hmm. between the, the the working class hero and the Hollywood millionaire. But um, and and it's a real problem. I mean, what what what's what's a guy to do? And I think some of the recent um, biographies of Springsteen dig in a little bit to the uh, the the the, the, um, the reality of the life of, of uh, somebody with that kind of power and maybe not so perfect treatment of employees and these kinds of things. That, so the little gaps between um, the image and reality are, are, um, are there. Are you thinking and specifically I, I, of uh, Peter Carlin's Bruce biography or, or Mark Dolan's Bruce Springsteen and the Promise of Rock and Roll? I'm thinking it's the Carlin, but I'd, I'd have to, to double check where I read those. Sure. I haven't read either of them. I've read reviews, um, and I, I can't remember where those uh, discussions were, but of being very um, uh, dismissive and um, disrespectful toward um, employees in a very, um, you know, celebrity diva sort of way that, mm. wow, that's Springsteen? You know, you don't expect that. <laughs> um, uh, but... Uh, you know, I, I, I think uh, I think that fans just have to sort out for themselves: is the music enough, or does the the messenger have to be pure? Well, and, I think uh, 
those bi- uh, those biographies have come out since you completed the second edition of God in the Details. We've also had uh, Wrecking Ball and his work on the uh, film The Wrestler come out since you had a chance to analyze Bruce in print. Uh, where does his new music take the the promised land theme that you discuss in your chapter? I think it's it's on the same trajectory. Um, I, I keep thinking, well, the, the, the latest album really is painting the bleakest picture yes, yet of the yes. gap between dream and reality, and then another album comes out and it's bleaker. Um, and so, you know, I, I see him just trying to tell the true stories of that distance between the American dream and the American reality, and 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 you know the the redemption isn't so much in the lyrics anymore the lyrics mm. are pretty bleak the redemption i think is in the concert experience that sense of connection community you know the um uh that that sense of communitas you know of people coming together in this uh kind of transcendent but very temporary moment um and feeling that somehow you've been lifted up you've been mm-hmm. Um, reinvigorated, uh, refreshed for uh, for what's next. Would you go um, so far as to call it a a Victor Turner like liminal space, an area, I would, yeah. a ritual yeah, or an I area? Would. Yeah, yeah. I think I mean Turner's so easy to um, to apply very very recklessly, but I think it works there <laughs> um, in the in the uh, in the concert experience. That's what I was um, asking. Am I applying it recklessly by suggesting? No, that? I don't think so. I mean, I I think when you when you read people's descriptions of what happens in those mm-hmm. um, moments when you experience it yourself and observe uh, the kind of energy in the room, it's it's some it's very distinctive. Mm-hmm. And I I think it would be foolish not to use the language of spirituality and religion and ritual to talk about it. You'd you'd miss it. But what I think is really um, important to note is that uh, his fan base like Bruce himself, we're getting old. And <laughs> I don't see a lot of young people paying attention to this music. Hmm. There's a kind of, um, well, there's an earnestness and an unironic quality to Springsteen that I think doesn't resonate um, as successfully with younger listeners well because this so is, i'm not sure where this is going right because this is the podcast on religion and popular culture i'm tempted to uh link it or at least throw out the idea of linking it to uh the most recent generation's lack or lesser attendance uh to religious institutions religious ritual is uh does does fanship of Springsteen in decline, or does the age bracket of Springsteen's fans relate to not only his music, but also an understanding of spirituality and religion? It, it's a great question, and hmm. it may, to the extent that his religious themes are so deeply Jewish and Christian, and you also you also said unironic, and I wondered if right. the lack of irony that the just the bold sincerity doesn't land right for the the current the current young audience. I think that's correct, and I also think there's 
a knowledge base that's increasingly lacking. Mm. I was listening to um, my 15-year-old son and a friend talk about um, the rapper Macklemore and his <laughs> song, Same Love. Uh, do you know the piece? Do you know the song? It's a, it's a great song. You know, I know nothing about rap music, but um, my son turned me on to this one. It's a uh, pro-gay rights song, oh. which, you know, coming from a rapper is, you know, kind of a delight to discover. Um, but at one point, he cites First Corinthians, love is patient, love is kind. And yeah. I heard my son and his friend, these two teenage boys, talking about it. And one says to the other, hey, do you know that stuff is from the Bible? <laughs> they, they had never heard these sentences before. Wow. Love is patient, love is kind. And I was sitting there kind of with my jaw on the floor. How can you not know that that's First Corinthians? And so there's a lot of slippage in mm -hmm. these cultural references that one used to be able to take for granted. Even if you hated the church, mm -hmm. you knew its text. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, in mainstream um, white culture. Which Bruce, that, not only likely to, Bruce is documented to have known. These are the very institutions we were talking about him trying to escape, but the language was still ingrained. Right. The language, the symbols, the values. Um, so what happens when that, that base is gone? I think popular culture, if popular culture is the place where people are going to be um, exploring their spirituality, it is so eclectic now and so um, detached from mm. the organized religious traditions that it's really going to be fascinating to see what kind of a, uh, an assemblage people are making for themselves. And so much more available to them. You know, these... Um, uh, you know, my, my, my kids and their friends are, they, they've got the world available to them mm -hmm. via technology. They can find music from anywhere that somebody happens to mention on, you know, a Tumblr site that they like. So, okay, they'll link to that and, and that takes me to this and that takes me to this. And so they've just got so many more options than my sisters and I fingering through the vinyl at a record store ever had. Right. Right. And uh, I want actually want that's it makes one more great uh, segue for me. I mean, through the miracle of technology, we're getting the chance to conduct uh, this talk and people get to listen to this podcast and have access to you and your insights where they may not uh, otherwise, unless they go, of course, in search of uh, your writings or come out to Chico to uh, study underneath mm -hmm. you as a religionist who also studies the issue of gender. What sort of male does Springsteen communicate through his music? And what sort of uh, religion or religiosity does he communicate? Particularly patristic coming from the Catholic Church, or does it expand, uh, excuse me, does it expand across further gender categories? I think, you know, as a feminist, I, I have to kind of admit that Springsteen is a guilty pleasure. I think <laughs> it, his music is overwhelmingly masculine mm -hmm. uh, and the narratives are very masculine in these themes of um, escape and uh, usually via automobile on a highway mm -hmm. right it's a, that's a very male narrative um, so my affection comes from his identification with um, 
with victims of other kinds of oppression, right? Mm. So uh, gender oppression is not one that he has paid a whole lot of attention to, but class oppression and racism, uh, these are in there. And so I sort of can say, well, on one level, he gets it. And in a couple of places, um, uh, I think it's Tunnel of Love, Song, Spare Parts, we get one of these rare close-ups uh, of a woman's experience and, and um, a story of suffering and redemption told through a woman's eyes. You know, this woman who's had an unexpected pregnancy and mm-hmm. the fiancé can't handle it and runs away, um, but she hangs in there. And as in so many of his songs, she has her redemptive moment uh, down at the river in the water, uh, and we get a kind of rebirth, and she, she pawns her... A wedding dress and wedding ring and, and, you know, gets on with life, gets some cold, hard cash to, to, to get on with life. Um, you know, that's a story that, uh, um, that I can um, relate more fully to as a woman, you know, the, the, the man gets to go away in the, in the loud car down the New Jersey highway. The woman is left behind with the baby. Mm-hmm. Um, and we don't usually hear him telling that, that story. Um, but there's a tenderness to the stories of these uh, working-class men whose country has left them behind that I find, um, I find, I still find very moving. Right. He doesn't do it all, but he does a lot. <laughs> and no one should be expected, no, no mortal person, no mortal musician should, of course, be expected to do it all. But the boss does a lot. Exactly. All right. Well, I certainly enjoyed that. Um, and great thanks to A. Dave there for coming up with the idea of, of giving us these uh, podcasts to use. Um, they, as we mentioned last week, these were originally recorded for um, a series that he was going to be uh, doing for a book that he had coming out, which it never materialized. So he contacted us and suggested that we might make use of these recordings yeah. that he had. And they were just the perfect length for RSP consumption, which is exactly what we want. Um, Talking about consumption... Yes, that's a really good link, David. It's almost like we rehearsed it. Um, next week, we've got Craig Martin speaking with uh, Dave McConaughey about um, capitalism and ideology and religion. Craig um, Martin, where do I know that name from? Uh, well, you, you know his name because he's one of the office bearers for Nasser, who are uh, one of our generous sponsors. Indeed, along with the BASR. Yeah. Um, you also know his name because he, he wrote a chapter in a, in a recent book, um, and, and the chapter is called Religion as Ideology, Recycled Culture versus World Religions. And, and the book is a certain After World Religions, Reconstructing Religious Studies, edited by... Some guys, Cotter and Robertson, we've never heard of them, but Craig Martin's good. Indeed, yeah. I mean, I'll certainly be taking a look at that. Um, but in that chapter, um, he talks a lot about um, a, a, a few of his experiences teaching courses. One is on the, the evolution of Jesus, um, which is an excellent example of how you can teach Christianity and in a way teach New Testament but also critique it at the same, critique that world religions approach at the same time. So you're giving the students the content that they've maybe wanted by coming to a world religions paradigm inflected course. But at the same time, you're tracking Jesus through the historical imaginary. Um, so he does a great job with that. And we'd encourage you to check out the chapter and the book. And uh, Craig's actually, I mean, he's one of the best 
at this aligning the critical um, a critical pedagogy with uh, with the classroom. There's a lot of very good examples in his um, critical introduction to the study of religion from uh, a couple of years ago, which I reviewed on actually on the religious studies project. Um, so you can check that out as well. Yeah. Um, and of course, he is one of the co-editors with Brad Stoddard of the Practicum blog, which is about bringing critical theory into the classroom, the religious studies classroom. Um, so uh, Brad is one of our interviewers. So it, there's a lot of synergy uh, with Craig's work and the work at the RSP. So we'll be delighted to bring you that next Indeed, week. Indeed, and I, I can't believe we've waited this long to have him as a full interviewer, but I'm sure it won't be for the last time. Absolutely not. So, um, David, I said it last week, so there's all the, the usual guff that we have to go through at the end of the podcast. The gubbins. Yeah, um, yeah so... Don't forget that you can follow us on Twitter, on Facebook, where we're very close to three and a half thousand followers. And in fact, we may have got there already by the time this is broadcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Time to be smug about an arbitrary number. Mm-hmm. Um, Google Plus. Don't forget that the episodes are now going out on YouTube. And there's a couple of interesting archival pieces gone up there in the last couple of weeks you may have missed. Um, we are also available on iTunes, and if you use this on iTunes, do please give us a rating. It really helps us get the word out to people who otherwise would never hear this podcast. Please do use our amazon.co.uk.com and .ca links because it's a way of helping to fund the project without any additional expense to yourself. And you can use our... um, If you go through the link on our homepage, then we benefit from whatever you buy, not only religious books, but also religious paraphernalia, um, Bruce Springsteen CDs, and other cultural artifacts. But for now, we're off to enjoy the delights of Wolverhampton and some of its cultural products. And we're going to leave you with our usual admonition. It's not an admonition. Exhortation. Thanks for listening.